0: And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light
1: of His glory and grace Welcome everybody to another episode of Trans Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, joining me for a second time, to speak with me about ephesians 5 is thomas j ord welcome tom thanks so much it's my pleasure to hang with you again yeah it's an honor to have you back on i know that um it's been a little while since we talked and um and uh and i just so enjoyed our first conversation i, th- I thought it was amazing oh, good you know? i did too mm-hmm. and so um so yeah i'm really really glad to have you back uh, since we last talked you have launched a new project do you want to tell people a little bit about that
0: well, uh, just in the last month or so, uh, I've launched a podcast series uh, on open and relational theology. It's called ORT Shorts, O-R-T <laughs> for open and relational theology and then Shorts. And uh, they're th- approximately three-minute little takes on themes or ideas or people in open and relational thinking. And uh, they're, they come out a couple times a week. I front loaded the thing. So we started with 20 episodes right out of the gate. And I think, you know, so we've got lots to, for people to listen to it the, on the, uh, what do you call it? The backlist. I don't know my podcast lingo. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, I, I would encourage people to um, to sign up and and subscribe if that's something they're interested in.
1: Yeah, and I would second that. I think um, uh, what I've listened to of Ort Shorts has been really poignant, um, very concentrated very, um, coherent, very, um, educational and, um, inspiring and very like, f- um, faith affirming and soul fulfilling. And so I think oh, that thank um, you, everyone should definitely check it out. Um, and it is very digestible.
0: Yeah. That's one of the big deal. I mean, you and others are already doing kind of a uh, interview format. And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of times I'm like, drive into the store or on a walk or something and i have just a short amount of time and uh, maybe these little shorts would be helpful
1: and i think that's exactly it is uh, not everybody has a chance to sit down for an hour and listen to a podcast and even when you have the time to sit down for any extended period of time um, if you have to break up an episode like um, one of mine that's usually about 60 minutes long you can kind of lose pieces in the middle because you can't focus or you, you pause and then you go, oh, wait, where where did they leave off or where was I in this? And so having like a short-form podcast, it's kind of a novel idea. It's not something that I see very often. So, Yeah, well, thanks. Excellent work. Um, the, the passage that we decided to talk about today was something that you originally brought up. Um, I think there was a specific verse that you had mentioned that you... Um, wanted to or that you had kind of been thinking about lately um, which verse was that
0: well it's
1: the first
0: first and second verses really the ones that I've been thinking about really for several years lately because of what I think it implies and and um, and how I've actually used it thinking about what it means for us to
1: love mm-hmm it's um, it's a complicated topic um, to love in a way that um, like Jesus loved is uh, really hard to do as like a human being like with ego and, and you know, hurt feelings and, and all these things that kind of trip us up in the way of being humble and loving like Jesus.
0: Yeah. And what's remarkable about this passage is it actually begins that we should imitate God. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's one thing to think, okay, maybe we can be like this, you know, first century Jew who lived long ago and kind of some general ways, you know, we're not going to talk like he does, walk like he does, wear the same clothes, etc. Sure, have the same sure. world view. But maybe there's some general ways in which humans can be loving like Jesus was a loving human. But the Apostle Paul jumps out of the gate and says, you're actually also supposed to imitate God. And that, I think, raises some really interesting questions.
1: And is it Paul saying specifically that there is a distinction between uh, imitating God and loving like Jesus? Are those two different things, do you think?
0: Oh, well, I definitely think so, um, and I think Paul thought so. I don't think Paul had a, was a Trinitarian in anything like the contemporary uh, sense of the word. Um, what exactly he thought about uh, Jesus' divinity, humanity, I'm not exactly sure, but I don't think he had any kind of a developed trinity. I think what he's saying here is that we have this human guy, Jesus, and some of us got to see him, other of us didn't. But we have an idea of what he was like. Now, that's our actually best picture of the kind of loving nature that God has. I mean, I don't think we can imitate God's omnipresence because we're <laughs> spatially located in one place. Uh, you know, I don't think we can know everything there is to know like God can, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I do think that this this verse in particular, but in general, points to the theme that Jesus's love gives us some revelation of the kind of love God expresses.
1: That is um to say that, like Paul firmly believed and expressed uh, in in many, many ways that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, but that right. Jesus was a distinct feature from or was a distinct um, you know object or distinct um person, basically from God, that God was the Father, and that Jesus was. The son who was representing the father here on earth, which is a complicated concept because as Trinitarianism kind of became the dominant mode of thinking, we're supposed to we're supposed to think this uh, this sort of circular thing that God is Jesus and Jesus is God and, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus and the Holy Spirit is God. But they're not. And they're also different. And um, the whole concept, honestly, is something that I don't I don't grasp super well. I mean, it's something that I've always kind of understood to be well. This is the tradition of thinking in the in the Christian Church. This is the way that we that we think about and, and talk about these three distinct bodies that are discussed in well, not bodies. That's probably not the right word. Entities that are discussed in the Bible. Um, but uh, but yeah, Paul is Paul is trying. I think to to draw uh, a distinction between those. I, I kind of would like to read. Uh, a little more of this, starting from one and going through um, maybe going through 10. And then can we pick a, pick a little bit more of this apart because there's a lot going on here and it's this particular section of Ephesians, late four and and um, the the basically all of five are very instructive. He's He's basically giving a detailed description of here's what you need to do, Do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this and don't do this.
0: And actually before, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear you read it,
1: but mm-hmm. I just
0: wanted to point out this kind of um, instruction about what to do and not to do precedes what we're about ready to read as well. So it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it's it's all over the place in, in this particular section of Ephesians.
1: And it's a large part of Paul's letters, I think, in general. Yeah. He felt as though he was out there to um, to sort of spread the message in a practical way on how to live as a follower of Jesus, not just saying, I'm saying to do this because I'm saying to do this, but because, you know, we were we were given this commission to spread what we, you know, what we were told is the, the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. And even those who grasp it or who inth- are enthused by it, who are excited by it and want to follow it, um, may not practice it in the way that, you know, Jesus necessarily would have wanted it to be practiced.
0: Right. And I, I highly doubt that many of the things we're about to read are going to come as like brand new information to the no. people who hear it. You know, this <laughs> is, these are kinds of lists that you find in other places in other religious traditions and other parts of, you know, the, of that day. Um, so I, I let's not, I don't think we should think that, um, prior to Paul or Jesus saying these kinds of words that everyone was just totally chaotic and had no clue of how to live. This is reinforcing a lot of things they already knew.
1: And there are specific critiques, I think, of human behavior at the time that um, might throw some of us uh, that might um, say like, well, that seems unrelated to, to practicing faith or to believing in Jesus or to like worshiping God. Uh, And it was, Common in Paul's letters, I think, to pick at particular things that he, that people were doing at the time that he saw as like a, as harmful practices, and then I think generally, yeah, other faiths did as well. They saw they saw um, crude language and sexual immorality and things like that as harmful to your human spirit. Uh, not again a new concept, but something that Paul continually brings up, even though Jesus, in many ways, never really commented on those things specifically. Um, cool. I will read, okay, I'll read 1 to 10 here. Uh, The header in the ESV is walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And I kind of want to pause there because I want to say, He's implying then that if we perform this love as Jesus did, if we if we imitate God, we are properly saints or we're, we're on our way to becoming saints, right? Mm, yeah. So jumping back in at 4, it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater that's a pretty intense call. And definitely is, yeah. And um, and asking people to set aside I'm sure what, what were fairly common parts of existence at the time.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you know this about my background, but I grew up in and I'm still an ordained elder in what is commonly called the Holiness Christian tradition. The Church of the Nazarene is the considered by most the largest organized group in the holiness tradition Mm -hmm. and as the word holiness suggests the people in my community have been especially keen on trying to live pure and upright kinds of lives Mm -hmm. and what exactly that means is constantly debated (laughs) constantly yeah but as a kid you know i i heard these words and had particular activities in mind that I thought met coarse talking or foolish joking or (laughs) whatever it was. (laughs) And I have very different things in mind now. In fact, as I go through this list, as you were reading, it's really hard for me to pick out some sort of eternal specific act that is, you know, what he considers darkness rather than light or empty words or um, somehow being a part of what will get God's wrath, disobedience, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as I was reading it, that as much as people may feel nervous saying this, there's a kind of relativism at play here. That what is coarse talking in one culture won't be in another. Mm-hmm. What is sexual immorality at one time won't be in another? What is, you know, just go down your list. Um, I don't think this is an extreme relativism, relativism, which says that anything goes. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all admit that even today, different activities are thought to be out of bounds in some cultures and appropriate in others.
1: And this might be, not a great example of this, but it, in my mind, it kind of made me think the first, I mean, my first thought when I read no, uh, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking was um, what, crude joking today. Is extremely crude compared to what crude joking 50 years ago in this culture would have been like. Now hey, we're my, my we're mother used to 500. My mother used to get on me
0: for saying the word "dang" D A N G. <laughs> dang, that was crude.
1: <laughs> so no. exactly, I mean, this is like um, we. I would like to know, and maybe this is just me, you know, being um, being naturally drawn to sin. But I would like to know what was a crude joke back then.
0: Yeah. What, what was a
1: What was a crude joke? And, and maybe there are some written down from this from this time, but it um, I'm sure to most of us, it would seem quite um, it would seem quite tame.
0: Yeah. What's the name of that town in Italy that was uh, taken over by a, a volcano and everything kind of froze in place? It uh, starts with the V.
1: Uh. wasn't the uh, wasn't the volcano Vesuvius and it was Pompeii. That was oh, that's
0: it exactly. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. Pompeii. I, I visited Pompeii. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and in one uh, particular place, it was apparently a, a house of ill repute. And you walk in, and there on the lot, on the wall was all kinds of sexual positions, people in interesting <laughs> arrangements. Um, it wasn't like um, creative sexual engagement is just a 21st century thing. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, so um, you know what what counts is out of bounds and not boy, you know that's that's tougher to to, to decide with absolute certainty.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we're not. Um, our culture, while it may act like, uh, is the first one that has had a ca- cavalier attitude towards, towards sex and 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 uh, an ex- exploratory attitude towards sex. That's happened forever. I mean, we're yeah. talking about <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> the, the Greeks and then the Romans and then let's follow the line all the way through. I mean, this is not a new concept. Yep. So, so I feel like even in this time, it probably would have been up for debate what exactly sexual, sexually immoral or sexually impure activities would have been. I think so.
0: You know, another thing that jumped out of me in, in your reading was in verse 5, uh, for this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such man as an idolater, I'm reading a different version, I'm sorry,
1: mm-hmm. no, has okay.
0: an has an inheritance in the kingdom of C- Christ and of God. Now, when I was a kid, that kind of verse would have been used to say Tom, if you swear, you're going to hell. The kingdom of God was an issue of the afterlife. Sure. And I just don't think in those terms anymore. I think in terms of the kingdom of God as expressing a kind of quality of existence that I can participate in now. Mm -hmm. And the reason I ought to avoid whatever ends up being rightly understood as obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, whatever is that I can't enjoy the fullness of that abundant life now if I engage in these immoral activities?
1: Mm-hmm. The uh, the use in the ESV of the word covetous actually threw me because when I I don't think of greedy necessarily when I think of covetous it has more to do with like. Um, uh, coveting some what someone else has being almost yeah. being jealous of what someone else has so then his uh the the correction that is an idolater after that it, it took me a second to kind of spin what that meaning might be i like your i think i like your translation better that's the Sorry. nrsv uh you know i've got one of these nrsv in of
0: a parallel with the greek in the middle and oh. i always forget which i'm reading the nfv or the nrsv it's one of the two
1: okay <laughs> <laughs> uh the the, the, um, the language in 7 through 10 is so beautiful. Mm. Um, it just strikes me every time I've read it or listened to it and the different translations that I've um, engaged with this passage in. Uh, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, and this is a a, um, a concept that I feel like Paul uses fairly often. You mm. were this, and now you are this. Exactly. For yep. at one time you were darkness, and now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Um, the the this turnaround, this expectation for the people who are following this new way, who are following this new Messiah, um, to not just say i am a believer not just say jesus christ is is lord and and not just you know pray in that right way but to actually formally change your life mm-hmm. uh, to actually truly deeply allow the message of the gospel to like work in you and change you so that you you can project the light of jesus out into the world what i mean what a crazy uh concept it must have seemed because there were so many people who were um, performing their religion in a way that was very um, rote. I mean, they would go to temple, they would do what, you know, they were supposed to do in the temple. They would give their, um, their contributions. They would do the things that they were supposed to do, but it didn't, I feel like a lot of religions weren't genuinely asking people to say, but change your heart. Uh, Don't just um, not, don't just not commit adultery. Don't even think, about other women in that way. It's like going back to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this idea is that like you're not becoming a follower of Jesus, truly understanding the message is not to say uh, that you just have to go through the motions, um, Mm -hmm. not to say you just have to pray these prayers, but that you actually have to change yourself within. And that's scary. I mean, I think for a lot of us, that's scary. (laughs) That's
0: beautifully put. And and when you you talk about that issue, my my own experience both personally and in the religious traditions i'm a f- part of come streaming back to my consciousness and that is in the tradition i grew up in there was a lot of emphasis upon doing your dead level best to become a holy perfect person and it often sounded like um, you just had to work harder. You had to grit your teeth, get it done, Got a train, you know, um, sanctify yourself <laughs> to, to, to quote the scriptures. Um, and I actually think there's a way to at least over partially overcome that tendency to think it's you know if it's the be it's up to me kind of approach to spirituality Mm -hmm. and that comes in that very first verse where it says we're supposed to imitate god and then as dearly loved children yeah i think there's something about the recognition that god loves us so it's a psychological benefit that we are deeply loved by god and and here i'm gonna get really speculative so um I think maybe this love is also a kind of metaphysical empowering. In other words, this love of God is not just in our heads that we're aware God loves us, but it gives us a kind of impetus, drive, some sort of power to act out in these positive ways and put aside those negative ways. So that it's just not all on our shoulders. We're
1: empowered by this God of who loves us. Is it maybe implied, too, in the use of as beloved children, like how um, children will imitate their parents? Yeah, They won't quite say the same words the right way and they won't quite, you know, they can't drive a car, but they drive the little the little plastic car that's got yes. the little <laughs> electric engine in it. Like, we can try, and that's actually what the call, I think, really is here. We can try to be like God. We can try to love like Jesus. We're going to probably fail at it, or we're going to look a little silly maybe when we do it, because we don't know how to do it in this perfect way that God does. But um, but at least try.
0: Yeah, and I think it can. we can make real headway. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a ways to go to reach perfection, that's for sure. <laughs> but... Um, I can see real progress in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not as bad at some things as I used to be because of repeated development of habits. You know, in my tradition, we call this Christ-likeness, being more like Jesus. Um, again, I, don't, I haven't arrived at perfection, but there's improvement. And I think sometimes, some traditions so preach the sinfulness of humanity that were rotten all the time. They don't really
1: talk about the possibility of genuine transformation.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that's part of the gospel. And I think that anyone who reads um, th- all the way through the New Testament, if you get through the gospels and you get through the letters, you'll understand that the expectation, I don't think, of humanity is that we will um, ever actually be like Jesus. We're, the expectation is only that we see we see the Lord, that we hear the Lord, that we hear the message, and we try to allow that to uh, help us become beacons of that love in this world. Whether we're going to succeed at that or not is, is another question. I think if, if any of us really became like Jesus, it might be kind of scary. I think it would yeah. be a little bit startling to see any human being that really behaved in the, same, uh, in the same love, in the same grace, in the same humility all of the time like Jesus did.
0: No, I think that all of the time is the key issue there, at least yeah. for me. Um, I I think I'm like Jesus in certain moments. Yeah. But consistently, every moment of my life, no, come on. I definitely <laughs> have not done that. Um, but as I string together these kind of moments with a, realist, a realistic expectation of what it lo- looks like for me to love in this moment, mm-hmm. then I think I can be perfect. I mean... It's not far-fetched for me to think that in this particular moment, in this conversation with you, the loving best to which God is calling me is to have this conversation. And that as I respond to that lure of love, as we go through Ephesians together, I'm actually being perfect right here and right now. I'm not, you know, rescuing, you know, uh, sex trafficking uh, women or men from the streets at this moment, Mm -hmm. what I'm doing is particular to who I am and where I'm at. And if I respond perfectly to God's call right now, I'm just like Jesus in this moment. Yeah. But there'll be a next moment and I'll have to make another decision.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Every day has its challenges. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hey, there's one other thing I would like to hit on before we go to some of the next verses. Sure. Of course. I was sensing maybe you're ready to go on. Mm -hmm. Um, This passage in verse six, that in my translation says, because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, it'll be partners with them. I've come to think that we shouldn't automatically jump to believe that God's wrath means some kind of physical punishment or pain that God sends to us. I think we can just think of wrath as God's anger, disappointment, the kind of feelings I sometimes have when my own kids did things that hurt others or themselves. And I was just like, why did you do that? Um, I don't think we have to always equate. In fact, I don't ever, but I, I admit there are some biblical passages that seem to connect God's anger with some kind of punishment or pain. but a lot of them don't make that explicit connection. and I think this is a good example of one where we don't have to think that God is the kind of kick
1: your butt kind of God if you step out of line. <laughs> and I think that wrath as it's used in the Bible and, and even in in, uh, in like things like the the seven deadly sins and think, concepts like this, wrath is not indicating, an act of punishment it's indicating an act of anger or a feeling of anger yeah it has a lot more to do with how it makes god feel than it does have to do with god's actual um uh um, physical smiting or or um, i totally know, agree
0: you know. i admit there are some passages that seem to connect negative consequences to god's anger i don't think they're nearly as many as most people think But, you know, I've read the Bible and there are some that seem to connect those. Mm. I happen to think that the connection is really natural negative consequences that come from sin or sometimes just freak, you know, acts of nature or whatever. I don't think God's in the punishing business. Um, But the vast majority of passages, at least that I can think of off the top of my head, don't make that explicit connection that so many people make. Here's a good example. Uh, since we're in the New Testament, that great story of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, it never says God kills them, but almost everybody and their uncle jumps to that conclusion that God killed them for lying about what how much money they... they the text doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I think it's a default uh, view of God many people have that they
1: impose on the text. I think it's um, it's interesting to me that in... Even in the the like the loosey-goosey translation that I use, the voice, they mm-hmm. even use the word wrath. They like to write around a lot of the <laughs> phrases yeah. that, that get you so that they can kind of stretch a little more language out of it. But uh-huh. in, in the voice, it says, don't be fooled by people whose sentences are compounded with useless words, empty words. Uh, they just show they are empty souls, for in his wrath, God will judge all the children of disobedience for all of these sins. That's like... Um, It's almost no different (laughs) than what what the ESV is saying. It's really interesting to (laughs) me. That's funny. (sighs) There's um, uh, before we um, jump forward, there was a something relating to how how we see others act or um, not following Paul's call to not follow those who are deceiving. I found Mm. a little passage in the. Imitation of Christ. That I, I just let, I always come to the, come back to this book in some way or another. It's, there's so okay. many passages in this that I find so compelling. And uh, this is a, a passage from uh, let's see from 25 of the fervent amending of all our life, and that we especially heed our own soul's health before all else. Uh, it says, study also to overcome in yourself those things that dis that displease you most in others. And always gather some special profit from any place at all. For instance, if you see any good example, make yourself follow it. And if you see any evil example, see that you avoid it. As your eye considers the works of others, so, and in the same manner, your works are considered by others. Which is, I think, echoing what Paul is saying in um, 9 and 10, that uh, your light is, um, if you behave in a way that exudes light, your lightness will be seen by others, but if you behave in a way that um, that withdraws light and that brings darkness, people will see that darkness in you too. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. Um, I guess we'll jump to eleven then. Great, uh, go for it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when they but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." I'm going to pause here again because this is a complicated passage. This is a complicated concept. Is he talking kind of about like confession or like um rebuking people that you see behaving in a way that isn't isn't Christ-like?
0: Yeah, it is a passage that is easily used by people who are self righteous and seem to know, think they know what's wrong with everybody else. <laughs> um, yeah, what does it mean
1: to expose the fruitless deeds of darkness? Hmm. It's so if we if we draw this line all the way out to the end of this this little passage, mm-hmm. uh, he's saying that like use. Use your light to turn those in darkness to light. Now it, that again could be greatly um, misconstrued and and greatly misused. But ultimately, yeah. I think it speaks to like those who are who are suffering un, either under their own um, their own actions, their own addictions, their own distress, um, could use a little bit of light in their life because once they see that light and once they are exposed to that light, then they too will become light. Yeah, Which is, yeah. I think, the like charitable reading of it, but then it could also be like, yeah, uh, go hunt down these people that are doing evil things and, sh- and show everybody how evil they are. It's like, a-
0: yeah, I like your interpretation much better. I mean, that word <laughs> "expose" in my in my translation it says "expose them." You know, that's <laughs> such a expose. It's such a you know, I don't know, uh, nightly news. is trying to get a gotcha kind of moment, kind of sound to it. Yeah, but it- if it simply means you know, you're living your life in a way that's beautiful. It will be a stark contrast to mm-hmm. those who live their life in ways that are destructive, ugly, um, thing,
1: evil, to use that word. That seems to be a much more positive rendering. I wish that my translation said, when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes light rather than saying when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible from, for anything that becomes visible is light. Because I feel like that is how I'm reading this is. Oh, yeah. Um, seeing light, seeing love, um, being shown that the world is not uh, just a cruel and caring place where everyone needs to fight and scrap for their own place and everyone needs to um, try to carve out their own little niche and gather up their own treasures and not share with anybody and just care about themselves. Um, seeing that love and generosity and caring and hope abound can kind of change people deeply from the inside. And it's like a little bit like, um, like a Scrooge kind of moment or whatever, you know, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes someone just needs to learn a lesson about the, about love. Um, but ultimately, I mean, that's, um, kind of a corny example, but it is this thing where I think people that, um, People do, especially in our world, get very wrapped up in themselves. Uh, they get very wrapped up in their um, their presence on social media, or their um, mm-hmm. the opinions of their friends uh, of them, uh, or um, get so enveloped in their own work, in their own careers that they sort of start to lose this notion that like we are um, a community of humanity, and that um, we are not against each other. None of us are against each other. Truly, um, it is our goal as humans to to try to make each other's lives better. It should be. Yeah. And those that succeeded that, I think, show people what Jesus did uh, or, or what Jesus meant for us to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. There's a, a verse here that what you read that I've had a different interpretation of later in my life than i did earlier so i'm, I'm again drawing upon a, the old tom versus the new tom <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the old tom when he was read verse 12 which in my translation says for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret uh, that verse was used to squelch any discussion of things that would be considered shameful. Sex was the biggest one, of course. Uh, But um, yeah, uh, it's almost always sex. So I don't even have to give another example. (laughs) It's usually (laughs) sex, isn't it? And, um, you know, so the the idea that I was presented with is you shouldn't even talk about sex because that's shameful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wonder if it's better to think that it's not, we shame people for talking about sex, but maybe it's a sort of our own sense of shame when we delve, when we get engrossed, or, uh, well, engrossed is a good word, in what is um, somehow wrong. Um, I'm not coming up with a good word other than wrong, but in, instead of like shaming others, it's this. It's talking about a sense of our own shame that starts to emerge
1: in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Like we're, um, yeah, we. It's not that, that we are cursed by exposing ourselves to the things of maybe um, immorality or impurity or or whatever the culture considers to be immoral or impure at the time. But it kind of turns ourselves against ourselves and makes us think yeah. what we're doing is wrong, inherently wrong. And it may be, but it may not be, and it may just be us, you know, yeah. thinking of um, thinking in the way that our culture thinks. And um, I think
0: that's one issue, in at least the last decade of my life, that's really been raised to awareness, and that is the question of shame: is shame ever appropriate? Um, because there's been so much bad shame going on, so much mis, misuse of shame. Yeah, is it ever is shame ever an appropriate uh, emotion, feeling, view of oneself? Um, that used to never be a question. It was obvious <laughs> yes, that if you yeah. felt shame, it was shameful, always the yes answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I first started getting an inkling that maybe. I didn't use the word shame. For me, it was guilt. Yeah. You know, I started realizing I could have false guilt. I could feel bad about things that I really shouldn't feel bad about because of the culture I was in, or maybe it was just an accident on my part or whatever. Um, But I think in broader culture,
1: that has shifted from guilt to shame. I think that shame is a weapon that um, Mm. people use often to... Um, and it's not always mis it's not always misguided or maybe it is misguided, but it's not always um at its heart uh, or the wrong um the wrong angle, right? If you're trying mm. to make someone feel ashamed of themselves, typically it's because you feel like they've done something wrong. Right. Or if, if someone feels shame within themselves, it's because they feel like they've done something wrong, either against themselves or against someone that they love or someone that they care about or someone that they don't even know. Yep. Um but a lot of our culture um, has been kind of formed around and is trying to kind of escape from in, in many ways that I think are constructive and useful, and, and in some ways I think that are um, maybe uh, not as constructive and not as useful. But um, the especially, I think, Western culture and the, the way that it was formed by the catholic church and then the lutheran church and and um, anglican church and the the sort of moralistic views that all of these churches have mm-hmm. had over time they have spent a lot of time convincing people that whatever it is that they're doing is absolutely wrong it's not uh, it's not how it's how you're meant to be. It's not who you're supposed to be. Um, it is actually an affront to God, and therefore causing these people such deep senses of shame that they either harm themselves or they can uh, harm other people and and like or become a sort of passive pawns to be manipulated. Yeah, by those in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and ultimately that leads to someone you know becoming either harmed themselves or uh, harming themselves or harming other people. I mean, it's right. like shame doesn't lead to productive um acts shame doesn't. I mean, I think that it's okay to feel bad about things if you do something wrong, then you should feel bad about it in a way because you did something that's wrong. But I think that like a perpetual sense of shame, especially when it comes to like activities that you partake in, um I don't think is constructive and it's not helpful. Yeah.
0: Boy, it's a complicated thing, isn't it? I'm agreeing yeah.
1: with all you, what you said here,
0: but um, there's still lots of gray areas that I yeah. haven't got my head around. You
1: know? yeah. There's so <laughs> many gray areas. It's, yeah. it's It's very hard to parse because when, what is something wrong? Well, you've yeah. harmed you've harmed somebody I think the, that's the first thing that I think of when you've done something wrong It means you've harmed somebody or you've you've stolen something from somebody in that way you're harming them too I guess and harming yourself or harming others are, are the things that I think we deeply feel the most right about. but
0: it's not always clear when we're harming others right you no, know sometimes it's not. people claim to be harmed and I think to myself you're not being harmed you know <laughs> uh, a lot of evangelical Christians claim to be persecuted and I just think come on um,
1: <sighs> yeah. We've talked about so, this on the show. A lot. Have you? Yeah. yeah. No, but it is. I mean, it's true. It's it's just a, a, a ridiculous concept to think that anybody that's a Christian in this country is persecuted in any way. You're not. And, yeah, and if you yes. if you read if you knew Jesus, okay, I shouldn't say this. That's not the way I meant that. <laughs> <laughs> if you paid careful attention to the message of humility in the Bible, you wouldn't be so concerned with your rights you wouldn't be so concerned with the things that you feel like you ought to be able to do and that people aren't letting you do. Yeah. You would come from a position of passivity and humility and you would allow whatever oppression it is that you feel like you're suffering to happen to you because if it's really true that this is what Jesus wants, then ultimately you will be rewarded for suffering through this. Yeah. Not you you need to to make a stand and 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 fight. You know, fight people in the streets because you don't want to wear a fucking mask or something. I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: yeah. It is complicated because on the other hand, we say to people who are, uh, have been traditionally impoverished and disempowered, stand up. Don't be run over. You know, (laughs) don't allow people to persecute you. Stand up because you have value. Mm -hmm. Um, And so are we giving a double standard when we say to evangelical Christians, you know, look, you're not being persecuted. It's, it's, it's gray. Um, it is. There's no doubt in my, my mind about that. I haven't figured out really great language to articulate a way forward. Um, but I recognize the issues at play.
1: Yeah. It's um. I mean, okay. So if we're taking it strictly biblically, the people who are, who are oppressed or who have been historically oppressed and, um, I mean, Paul in in Ephesians, I don't want to get into six, but in Ephesians six is talking about um, uh, slaves and masters and, and things like that. And that, you know, basically the call is for whatever position you're in in life, whoever you are, you are to submit, you are to give yourself over. And so in that way, yeah, I guess there is a double standard there because that's what the book says. But that's a hell of a lot more complicated in practice. (laughs) I'm not
0: comfortable selling someone who's enslaved. Just submit, you know. Right. No, you're a slave right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What a horrible thing. So it's like I guess in the context of our times, there's there's like um, there's a very liberatory um, aspect, I think, of the gospel um, that all are welcome and that all are to be, that all can be saved and that all probably will be saved uh, depending on your kind of stance on that part, particular thing. But um, it, it's an incredible thing and it's a very unifying thing. But then there are parts of Paul that kind of say, well, you're at where you're at and you just need to kind of Get used to where you're at and and not get so upset about it. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Not something I'm qualified to speak on. Genuinely not something I'm qualified to speak on.
0: I chalk it up to another example of how you can find conflicting kinds of claims in scripture, you know. Paul who says sometimes submit to the authorities and other times implies you ought to overthrow them. It's,
1: <laughs> it's complicated. Well, he wrote this letter from prison, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was this a, was this a, um, a sanctioned thing to do for prisoners at the time to be writing letters to folks out, out there in the world to be like preaching from jail. Was that something that the jailers would have been happy yeah, about?
0: The Roman authorities are like, yes, way to go. Yeah. Go ahead. Another, <laughs> another
1: great letter in the history books. <laughs> <laughs> oh you know, um this might be a time that I want to pivot because we just talked about conflicting things that we find in the scripture. And there was another yeah. passage that that came to me in um in I was just listening through minor prophets. Um sometimes I like to just walk around my neighborhood and listen to passages of the Bible. And there was one passage that stuck out to me because of all the discussion that we've had about open and relational theology and the notion of God. Cool. Um, the God being, you know, living with us essentially, not not being this unchangeable, unmovable, all knowing, all acting, um, everything is planned type of God. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's a belief that I I think I've really taken on in a lot of ways. In some ways I still wrestle with it because there are aspects of it that that I feel um Allow me to just say, okay, well, that's then. Just you know, God's going to live along with me, and there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing God can do about it, yeah. <laughs> uh, which gives me way too much agency, which gives me way too much much ability to continue to make mistakes. But um, there's a passage in Malachi. Uh, it's Malachi oh. three six, and uh, oh, yes, this is. Um, I guess I want to read through a little bit more than just six, but ultimately. And, and the context, I guess, is, is not as—I'm not going to go through the context of it as much, because the phrase itself is extremely uh, potent, and it is something that um, I feel like even— it's contradicting even the things that came before it in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. But Malachi 3.6 says, "...for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed."
0: Yeah, and then that same passage, or at least an echo of that, comes in the book of James, which also talks about God being unchanging. There's no shadow on God or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a very common worry that's raised to open relational thinkers like me, because we do say there's an aspect of God that changes and that seems to be directly contradicting
1: <laughs> what we mm-hmm. just read in Malachi and what me, many people know in James. Yeah. It's um it's I can't I can't imagine that um looking at the different ways that God has changed uh like his actions towards people or changed his mind in certain senses or um or um come around to people when before like these people were cursed. Like I I feel like it's even contradicting itself before it comes up. But there is obviously some school of thought in Scripture that hangs its hat on God being this stone, which mm. uh, is, in a way, I think I can see why that would be comforting to some people, right? That, yeah. That oh. God is God. And unlike me, who is changing all the time and is becoming a different person constantly, uh, usually in, in ways that are productive and 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 growth based, but sometimes in, in terrible ways that are self destructive. Uh, you know, unlike that, God is um always there and God is always this um this entity, this all knowing entity that will always be exactly how I left him the last time that I mm-hmm. that I prayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um it's scary to think that God might feel differently about something tomorrow than God felt today. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, you're setting me up really nicely because uh, this summer I published a book on open relational theology. And in that book, I address this Malachi passage. And um, then I read the very next verse.
1: So why don't you read
0: Malachi three seven and see what that says.
1: From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts, but you will say, how shall we return? Yeah, so here we have in the first verse,
0: God says, I'm not going to change, I'm unchanging. (laughs) And the second verse says, well, I'll return if you return to me, which sounds like there's going to be a change in God if we decide to return. (laughs) So right there in the classic text for an unchanging God, the very next verse implies God will change. If we return to God, God will return to us. And of course, as you mentioned, there's lots of examples in scripture in which God repents, has a change of mind, Mm -hmm. has the different plans. Um, So here is what open and relational folks do with that passage that I know I'm biased, but I think it's a genius move. (laughs) (laughs) I think it allows us to embrace what we like about the unchanging part and embrace what we like about the changing God who's in a real relationship with us. Yeah. And it says this God's nature is eternally unchanging, but God's experience changes moment by moment in relationship with us. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It would be kind of like saying humans have a human nature that remains the same, but how that's expressed moment by moment changes in its environment and giving, receiving. Or my favorite example is to say, suppose uh, I have, happen to have three daughters and they all play soccer or they played soccer. They're, they're, they're grown now. But um, when they were younger, I played soccer with them differently than I did when they got in high school because they were different kind of people. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Does this mean that I loved them any less when they were younger or any less when they were older? I like to think my love for them remained constant, but the way I expressed that love and my ongoing experience with them varied depending on who they were. Mm -hmm. And I think we can say God's nature of love is steadfast, unchanging, immutable, to use the classic language. We can always bank on the view that God's going to love. However, the ways God expresses that love is going to be tailor-made to us moment by moment. It's going to change depending on where we're at in our lives. So we can then have this affirm both these truths that I think are both in Scripture with the technical word is dipolar theism, or the my phrase is God's essence experience binate, but it's a way of talking about these two truths
1: that that um, I think are part of who God is. I think that's um, the best possible response to the criticism that <laughs> this this passage <laughs> may pose <laughs> yeah. that, that anyone's going to get. I mean, um, yeah, there is. Um, so if I'm I'm gonna to try to summarize in a way that makes sense to me so that I can okay. I can kind of set this in as well. Good. Um, that uh the nature of God, which is love and and creation and um and nurturing uh and caring is uh is unchanging, but right. the activity of God or the action of God is um or the expression of God is the thing that can happen as it happens, as though God is truly. Living with us and experiencing right. life with us. And,
0: and this is going to sound weird to some listeners,
1: God learns in that
0: moment by moment relationship with us. New things happen that God knows as soon as they happen. But because of that new information, God says, you know, the best way to love Tom in the next moment is going to be a little different than it was in the past moment because <laughs> Tom's a little different person than he was now than he was then. Yeah, yeah. And that just fits the way we live our lives. I mean, that's just that's what good parenting looks like, right? (laughs) You don't use the same techniques on a one-year-old as you do a twenty-one-year-old,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, If even if you don't gender God in the way that I know that I do, and I know that it bothers some of the people that listen to the show, and it's it's a it's a habit, I guess. It's not something that I'm going to break anytime soon because it's it's too comfortable for me. But um, even even if you don't gender God, the notion of God as a father is is pretty well. Uh, well laid in scripture and so if we take that to its logical end a a good parent a good father uh experiences life with his children and sees where his children may need correction or may need um love and understanding and and forgiveness and god i think is more than willing to to offer love and and acceptance and and forgiving and and uh Boy is it a complicated concept, and I know that it's one that I feel like I could have you on five more times Tom this is, <laughs> I, really, I love it every uh. time we talk it's it's just one of the you know it's a it's a bright spot, so oh thank you um. Do you want to plug your show one more time? I'm gonna get my poetry book well, for the week.
0: I want to say one more thing about the passage we read, if that's okay with you. Please, please you do. You read through and now I lost my place, so I gotta flip back to it. Ephesians 5. You read through I think 17, didn't you?
1: I read through actually I stopped at 15. We didn't do 15 16, 17. Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay, bummer. Well, I'm gonna go
0: <laughs> I'm gonna go to 15 if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> because you know, whenever we look at these passages, at least whenever I do, I'll speak for myself. I think it's true for other people, but we tend, I tend to think that some verses kind of encapsulate or capture the big ideas that are expressed in the details of other verses. And in my way of thinking, that first verse, imitate God as dearly loved children and live a life of love as Christ loved us is a big encompassing idea. And then verse 15 is a big encompassing one. It says, be careful then, almost like he's concluding his argument, be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. I think that's a nice encapsulation of all the details that we looked at earlier mm-hmm. by saying, look, be wise. That's a way to say, you know, be discerning. Um you there you're going to have to figure out what it means to have, what was our, 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 our examples here, foolish talk, coarse joking. You're going to have to figure <laughs> out what that entails in some situations versus others. Yeah. You're going to have to be a wise person here. Um, you're also, you want to love. So keep love and wisdom together here, and you're going to be able to maneuver your way through all a lot of details in life that you're uh, struggling with.
1: And and being wise, I think, is to imply um, being like God,
0: I think so too. Another yeah. common characteristic of God in Scripture.
1: Yep. Do not be foolish. That's a great point. Yeah. That's good advice. Do not be foolish. I I don't get that advice enough. I should I should read this more. <laughs> more often. It's kind of a no brainer, right. but you know
0: sometimes you just have to be reminded. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well. Yeah, I I I guess you asked me to sort of remind folks of some of the things that we mentioned the po- the podcast called Ort Shorts. Yeah. And I also mentioned this uh new book that came out this summer called Open and Relational Theology: An Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. It's a book that is truly written for your grandmother to read. In other <laughs> words, you don't have to be a scholar to understand this. I I I punched in. You know how when you you write a paper and you can you can punch in and it tells you what uh, reading level the thing is at. Yeah. I punched that in, and this is at a seventh grade reading level. <laughs> and I was like, exactly. That's what I'm aiming for. I that's mean, why yeah. I liked it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. There's some big ideas in here, but they're put in language that I think most people can get their heads around. Yeah. And, um,
1: I, I just, I guess I would recommend it to your readers. I would recommend it too. And, and I, I would also recommend word shorts. I think that, um, you're doing incredible work really. Thanks and, Ariel. Um, I really appreciate that. I think it, um, It means a lot that you came back on again. And and again, like, uh, you know, I was joking when I said five more times, but if you do ever want to join me again, I would just just love to have you. I'm
0: always up for for joining you. I enjoy these conversations.
1: Awesome. Well, um, I picked an interesting poem this week. Uh, It's by George MacDonald, and it's called Obedience. Mm. I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, there are no flowers there, he said, no flowers but a crown. I said, but the skies are black, there is nothing but noise and din. And he wept as he sent me back, there is more, he said, there is sin. I said, but the air is thick and fogs are veiling the sun. And he answered, yet souls are sick and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He answered, choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? It will not seem so hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields, then set my face to the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he, and I walk in a light divine, the path I had feared to see. Hmm, very nice. Thanks, everybody.